Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. And I'm your co-host, Matt Prindeville. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Welcome back, everybody, to the Indisposable Podcast. We are over 100 episodes into the show now, and today's a fun one for me as we're revisiting the topic from our very first episode, the passing of the 2019 Single-Use Foodware and Litter Reduction Ordinance in Berkeley, California. Now, the passing of this model policy was a huge win for the reuse movement, and now, over three years later, we've got a number of other city ordinances in the works, many of which have been on hold through the global disruption that has been the COVID pandemic. So we're really happy to have Martin Bork here with us, who's the executive director of the Ecology Center and one of the organizations behind the ordinance who we talked to in our first show way back when. And he's going to tell us about a new online toolkit that they have developed that's designed to share some of the key insights and resources from this model policy process with others looking to pass city-level policies to reduce unnecessary litter. And this ordinance has also attracted some attention from academic researchers. And to hear a bit more about current and future research topics on this ordinance and its impacts, we'll also talk with Jessica Hygis, a researcher at the Environmental Science Policy and Management Program at UC Berkeley, who's doing her dissertation on sustainable and just transitions to disposable free dining. So thank you both so much for joining us on the show today. So great to be with you. Yeah, thank you for having us. All right, so let's jump in. Martin, let's start with a little context setting for our listeners who might not be as familiar with this model policy. What is it that makes this single-use foodware and litter reduction ordinance so unique? Well, uh, cities uh, around California and around the planet and the country have have been doing efforts to reduce or really just to stop plastic packaging foodware and, and utensils and straws and things for a while. So we'd seen around Berkeley, um, Alameda, Santa Cruz, San Francisco, um, you know, other smaller cities around the country doing things that restricted um, foodware to compostable or recyclable materials. But um, you know, lots of that was pretty pretty bad stuff, and we really wanted to take a different approach to it and say, how do we reduce uh, disposable foodware overall? We learned a lot from the plastic bag ordinance that uh, we first piloted here in Berkeley in 2009 at at the Ecology Center's farmer's markets. Rather than saying, let's just ban plastic bags and then drive the use of a whole lot more paper bags, we said, okay, how do we reduce bags overall? You know, the, the plastic versus paper question that you used to get at the supermarket um, was the wrong question. You know, the right question is, do you need a bag, not do you want a paper or a plastic bag? And so we really wanted to apply that thinking to foodware and not say, do you want plastic or paper foodware, but do you need foodware to go at all? Particularly if you're sitting down to eat in a restaurant, it should be, you know, reusable, washable foodware. So um, that's what made it really distinctly different than, than some of the other prior efforts. And, you know, we had a leg up here in Berkeley because uh, we had passed the first polystyrene foodware ban in 1986, I believe. And so the cheapest, most egregious, most horrible foodware packaging uh, on the planet was already off our list. 
and that made um, you know a, a lot of other things uh, easier, which I think you know we can get into a, a little later. But the the fundamental difference is that this is a reduction strategy overall, as opposed to a substitution model of you know let's let's move to something less worse. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and we will dive in a little more to the other aspects of this that uh, are not necessarily unique, but perhaps made a big difference in the Berkeley context for this to be able to be passed. But first, uh, Jessica, tell us a little bit from a research perspective, why did this stand out as such an interesting theory and practice case study to focus on? Yeah, I mean, everything Martin just said was the reason why it excited me. It was structured as a model ordinance. It was groundbreaking and intended to make unprecedented progress on waste reduction policy. So not only for Berkeley, but for other jurisdictions to learn from and adopt relevant components. Um, However, there was no plan at that time to rigorously assess its effectiveness, which from a researcher's side felt a little troublesome giving it standing as a model policy. So if others were planning to implement, but there was no assessment of its effectiveness, that there just seemed to be kind of that missing data um, component right there. And it also had this unique structure of being a three-phased adoption where different components were, were phased in. And then one year after each phase was when the enforcement would go into play. And so it effectively became a natural experiment for insights that other types of experiments will require controls and intervention groups and so forth. But this had just the way that it was structured, this natural way to to analyze the different mechanisms in play. And also, it was unanimously passed in January of 2019. I started my doctorate in fall of 2019. So the, it just, it, the timing correlated perfectly. And to think that I could have the opportunity to study, rigorously assess such a policy with the backing and resources of UC Berkeley, it felt it felt so right. And my advisor is Dr. Kate O'Neill, who is uh, internationally known in waste studies. So to have her support through it all also just felt felt perfect. Mm, that does seem well aligned. So you said that um, the, in a sense, this was a natural case study, but was there work that you did right away in terms of data collection or any supplemental information gathering that's going to make a difference in our ability to analyze the effectiveness now and into the future? To an extent, yeah, it certainly was site specific, but some components of it. So to to prepare for the analysis, we took the uh, the list of registered food businesses from the city. And then we parsed it down for those who had to comply with the ordinance. And then from there, we randomly selected food businesses to, to observe. And uh, the we randomly selected with a 95% confidence interval, which meant that we had both internal and external validity, which essentially means that we could survey these various entities and then generalize those findings across the entire city. And so we collected at in the first year at 157 different businesses. And that collection process included observational quantitative surveying of the different ordinance components at each restaurant. So a data collector would go into a restaurant and see, are there three waste bins? Are they charging 25 cents per disposable cup? 
are they giving foodware accessories automatically or by request only? And then we collected that every fall for four years to normalize across the seasonality of foodware usage and also gain that longitudinal uh, perspective. So there's so many questions here. Um, and I'm just going to go one step further with you, Jessica, before we dig into the toolkit part of the story here. Um, but I know that we had a bit of a disruption in you know, <laughs> business as usual that happened right after yeah. this ordinance was passed. And so tell us a little about how that has affected your research. And then Martin, I want to hear how has that affected the implementation side and the work that you all are doing with the toolkit? Yeah, disruption to say the least. So originally our methodology was we would collect fall 2019, spring 2020, fall 2020. So we were just going to do three time periods. And then with the disruption, we decided to do an annual data collection to have a better understanding of what is happening every year amid this unprecedented pandemic. And that baseline, however, is still valid and still a pre-ordinance, pre-policy baseline that any future research or any future activity can continue to be uh, compared against. And so while this specific project has ended, there are hopefully opportunities for future data collection and future analyses to take place to compare it back to, to see, okay, before the ordinance, what now looking back five years later, 10 years later, what can we learn and how can we build off of that? Because as you're essentially alluding to, at the end of the day, this um, set of data is mostly analysis of the impact of COVID on food businesses and disposable foodware. We do have some, especially with this last year's of data, um, 2022, some um, a little bit further insight, not just COVID specific, but there is just that huge COVID asterisk all the way through. Yeah. And we know that it, ended up being a real significant barrier, not just for businesses' survival, but for all the progress that um, people in this movement and listeners to the show were making right before the pandemic yeah. to get these kinds of ordinances in place. So maybe, Martin, that's a good pivot to tell us a little bit about how it impacted implementation and how the toolkit um, you know, has a little bit of that story in addition to helping people pick up where they had to leave off for a few years. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty devastating to go through all of the community organizing and effort to get this thing passed, which you covered in that very first podcast. And it was, you know, really an exciting time to get this unanimous support from city council. And then, you know, shortly as the ordinance is getting rolled out to, you know, face these incredible headwinds of just restaurants closing, you know, there's outright close. First of all, all the restaurants closed out of the gate, right? So there was just no food where at all. And then those that reopened, you know, we lost a, a big chunk of them, um, just never reopened uh, or went out of business during the pandemic. And then, you know, the, the major shifts from um, dining on site for those restaurants that, that were using already reusable foodware to delivery and takeout only, um, or even outdoor dining, um, uh, you know, a lot of restaurants that served on plates in their restaurant when they went to outdoor dining, it was all dis disposable. And then we had the, you know, the CDC and the health department saying that disposable was safer, which it wasn't any safer, <laughs> but they're saying that, and, you know, people's own concerns of, 
you know, our employees at, at, at cafes being concerned about somebody bringing their own cup and if they might get sick from handling that cup. So there were just, you know, a lot of things that set the whole effort, you know, locally, nationally, internationally set everybody back. And, um, you know, it's really just now that the um, we're starting to really press forward and getting to see um, elements of this enforced and 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 um, seeing the, the benefits. I think the 2022 data that Jessica mentioned, we've seen some upticks and some recovery, some forward progress over pre-pandemic in some areas, but in other areas, it's just like trying to get back to where we were before the pandemic hit. Um, the toolkit is really exciting for us because following Berkeley, a lot of other cities had already been thinking about things like this. We just happened to be the city that managed to get it across the finish line first. Uh, a number of other cities have done amazing things in the meantime. Um, you know, uh, we had uh, Victoria, BC. We had um, LA recently. Uh, there's just, you know, been a, a lot of cities doing a lot of things, which is really exciting. And then a lot of other cities have just... You know, they got their whole ordinance drafted and everything. They had their champion on their local city council or their county board of supervisors, whatever. Um, and then they just kind of put it on hold. And so now we're hearing a lot of uh, places being like, okay, we're ready to get it going again. What can we learn from Berkeley? And so this toolkit is really, you know, it's not necessarily a how-to or instructional in that way. It's what did we do? So it's got, you know, all the backstory on, you know, the underpinnings of our battles against plastic foodware and plastics in general here in Berkeley at the Ecology Center um, as a recycler. You know, all of that sort of backstories in there and, and background is there as a good compendium of, of information, you know, efforts to make things compostable. And then it turns out, well, they're just contaminating our compost and they have to get sorted out. So a lot of good background information. But then like the specifics, how are we organized? How do we come together? What is the way that the, the, all these um, uh, local activists came together? And what, how was the work organized? What was the process, the official process by which the ordinance was introduced and then went through public process through the Zero Waste Commission? What changes came out of that? So you can see all of that sort of outlined. How did it progress? What was the media coverage like? What what did we push out in terms of our press events, our press releases, um, our social media? Uh, how did we talk about different things? Why did we even land on disposable versus, you know, disposable free Berkeley versus plastic foodware ban or something? <laughs> you know, like what language did we use? Um, and then just uh, some in-depth examples. What were our FAQs, talking points? other resources that were really helpful for us when we were sitting down with say this, the city health department to talk about foodware, you know, reusable foodware and how, how might restaurants switch to um, washing in house when they don't even really have a dishwasher because they were built around disposable. So um, there's some good, you know, both internal resources we developed as part of the campaign, as well as external resources uh, from other organizations that we leaned on pretty heavily. And um, we hope it's useful for people. And we love feedback. Um, you know, if, if uh, folks check it out and say, hey, you know, what about this or what about that? And then also, like, if if folks are excited but don't know what to do next, you know, then there's Upstream, um, you know, where people can plug in and get 
part, you know, be part of the National Reuse Network or other group, you know, get get more hands-on practical support, some hand-holding in terms of how to get a campaign started and and uh, how to start um, moving forward in your local community. Yeah, it's really an incredible resource. We'll we'll put a link to the page on your website in the show notes, of course. Um, one of the parts that I think it'd be great to talk through a little bit on the show here is the lessons learned part. And I know that there was a way that you structured your campaign that um, had a really significant impact on your win and love to hear a little bit more about that and any of the other key lessons learned you'd like to share with our audience here now. Yeah. I mean, ideally when you're developing public policy of any kind, uh, you start from what is the key problem that you're trying to solve and, and, and really thinking about, who is impacted by a change, who's most impacted by the problem, and really trying to engage those people and those voices in drafting any kind of solution. And um, as you know, the recycler for the city of Berkeley, we're one constituency who is really affected by foodware because it contaminates our recycling. <laughs> so that's a real problem for us. But we're also a community-based organization. We run farmers markets. We're engaged in other efforts. So, you know, litter in our streets is also something that uh, affects the organization and our constituents and our members throughout the city. The storm drains uh, are another big place where this food where it impacts our, our community. And um, we had just had a tax increase in the city um, to pay for storm drain um, improvements and compliance. Um, so, you know, talking to city staff about, you know, somebody's got to go and suck out all the muck from these storm drains where all this food wear and litter collects. Um, and then community members, you know, who, um, who live in litter hotspots, you know, it, it's, it's not news that um, lower income neighborhoods and um, red line neighborhoods typically get poorer service from public works departments in cities across this country. Their garbage cans are typically overflowing more. Their neighborhoods typically have more litter. They typically have more fast food restaurants in them and convenience stores um, that are producing a lot of um, throwaway garbage in their neighborhoods. Um, so listening to those communities, you know, up, up front, I think is really key in terms of putting together a, a plan. Um, we knew that there were going to be people impacted by this that um, didn't know it was happening. So we did a lot of outreach um, and tried to um, particularly engage people with disabilities in our community. Um, there had been a lot of focus on straws and people who, who have health conditions or situations where they need a, a straw to drink and a plastic straw seems to be the best for them. And so um, trying to get out in front and really get feedback and information from that, um, from that community was, was important. It didn't happen early on, um, even though we put in quite a bit of effort on that front. Um, and so, you know, we're sort of at the last minutes, last days, um, you know, trying to manage a situation where people were suddenly saying, oh, this is actually going to get passed. Now I have opinions about it and I want to weigh in. And, and so, you know, trying to get out in front of that and really have those conversations early so that you can build in language to make um, appropriate accommodations or adjust the, um, the proposal in such a way that it's not going to negative impact, particularly people who have 
a, a lot of other issues of oppression stacked up on them to begin with. So, you know, I think that that fundamentally that would be the the biggest lesson learned. I mean, we knew it going into it and tried to do it our best throughout, but I think um, there there might have been some other way we could have gotten out in in front of that uh, issue in particular. Yeah, and I know I do remember we talked about that a bit in the first episode too. For folks who really want to open the hood a little bit more on the community engagement part of the process, um, you know, I'm also interested in. We got to hear you talk about this on the National Reuse Network call last week, and you were talking about some of the other variables that were sort of just aligned in the right way for this to pass in Berkeley. For example, the campaign spending limits that exist in your city government that might not exist elsewhere. So what are some of those other variables for folks who might be in less progressive cities. I'm sure a lot of people listening are are having some version of the thought of, okay, it's Berkeley, but I live in Cleveland, Ohio or wherever. What are some of those variables that might be helpful and how the toolkit might still be a useful resource for folks who are in less um, (laughs) low-hanging fruit kind of places? Yeah. I mean, here here in Berkeley, we have, you know, a very um, uh, environmentally aware population people move to berkeley because of its environmental focus or its social justice focus or wanted to be part of uh, other kinds of social movements um and you know because of our history in those movements um it makes it a lot easier and because of the support of of voters in this and residents in in town here um makes it a lot easier for city council to support innovative ideas and in fact most city council members get elected because they are innovators and they want, you know, they're, it's an activist council in many ways. And so they're often driving change um, and looking for good partners and supporters in the community that can do some of the bigger lift in terms of reaching out and getting feedback and working through the challenges and engaging, you know, in this case, restaurants or other businesses and getting feedback. Um, so, you know, we're predisposed to try new things here in Berkeley. Not all of them work, obviously some of them fail terribly and we try something else. Um, and we're not the only city obviously that gets out in front on things like this. So we think about lots of other, um, university towns as being some, you know, progressive in, in those ways. Um, and we kind of hand off, you go first or we'll go first, or we tried this, but maybe it'll work different in some, you know, some other city. Um, but one of the things that is, uh, you know, it's a real leverage in terms of, uh, you know, our fundamental uh, thing that we have here and other cities have as well, but, but really needs to be much broader and should be the case at the state and national levels is that we have campaign finance limitations that are pretty, um, Pretty robust. Uh, the largest campaign donation you can make to a council member in Berkeley is two hundred fifty dollars, and that has to get reported and it is visible to everybody. And so, first of all, it's very hard for, say, the restaurant association or the chamber of commerce or you know other business groups, uh, the packagers, you know, some a company in a styrofoam company like Dart to come out and just um, start giving money away to people's campaigns. 
Like it just doesn't go very far. <laughs> doesn't buy a whole lot. 250 doesn't buy a whole lot of loyalty from your local elected official. And they also can't go out, come out against them and say, Hey, look, if you don't kill this thing now, I'm going to fund your, your competitor next election cycle and, and threaten them and scare them. You know, that's common practice in our politics today. And it's just doesn't really have much traction in Berkeley because of, of these limits. The other thing is that because of our constituent, you know, our, our voter base, there's a lot of sort of anti-corporate culture here. And to get money from any big industry lobbying group, you know, like if McDonald's were to come in and give a bunch of money to one of our council members or something, it, it just wouldn't play well for them. Um, you know, and then next election cycle, their competitors are going to say, oh, yeah, they're in the pocket of McDonald's. You see what happened last time. That's just not going to play well in this community. So, um, you know, that's very unique here. But um, both the campaign contribution cap, as well as the sunshine laws that require all that to be um, visible to the public, you know, makes it really it, it means that council really pays attention to their voters. And to, you know, their constituents like small mom and pop restaurants, they see those as core people that they want to listen to. They want to support a dynamic, interesting, farm forward food environment here. And so they listen a lot to those people, as, as do we as the Ecology Center. So those become, you know, real authentic concerns as opposed to the concerns, say, of McDonald's corporate or you know, some, some other, um, you know, the, the U S chamber of commerce or dart or some other packaging Institute. So it raises a question for me and, um, either one of you might have a response, Jessica, maybe you've studied this, you know, outside of Berkeley as well, but I'm curious for those who want to get this kind of ordinance passed in other cities that don't have that kind of campaign finance law, would it make sense to work on getting those kinds of laws in place first? Or do you guys think that there's other strategies that are tactics that might need to be used in those places and these laws could still get passed? I think if somebody asked me what's the single most important policy reform we could have in this country for the environment, it would be overturning Citizens United and getting corporate money out of our political process. If you ask me the same question about racial equity or economic uh, equality or, you know, any number of social issue topics, abortion, reproductive rights, reproductive freedoms, you know, any number of, of uh, issues, I would say the same thing. And so I feel like there is a, a need for all the braided streams of various movements to come together around some of these fundamentals that prevent public policy from reflecting the needs and interests of, of everyday average citizens. And uh, campaign finance reform and campaign sunlight are two really critical ones that cut across any issue that you're, you're trying to move forward where there are corporate, large, well-financed opposition. And I'd say to build on that, until those reforms are put in place, some things that were what seems like were particularly helpful for Berkeley, uh, in addition to having those in place, were the Zero Waste Commission. This was a component of 
of council, but not elected members. They are, and they're all voluntary. And they did a lot of research, held a lot of public hearings, did a lot of um, iterating on what does what do the different constituents, so be it consumers or be it food businesses, what do they want out of this kind of policy and what is feasible and viable to pass? So we had the Zero Waste Commission. We also had just a lot of community interest in general. Like there was a groundswell of support from all different types of resident um, bodies. And then also there was a council member who was ready and willing to champion this. And so um, even regardless of what jurisdiction you're in, if you're able to build that community and especially have that council member support and have a, a zero waste commission or um, be it a climate change commission or some connective tissue towards government that can greatly help um, build the case for such a and can create the groundwork for such a policy. Yeah, I would just add to that that um, no matter what city you live in, foodware is definitely a problem for your public works department. Yes. And foodware is a problem for businesses like uh, Rethink Disposable led the business survey. They found really high percentage. I think it was like 70% of business owners said they had uh, one or more issues with foodware, whether it was the cost. You know, a lot of them were pissed that I got to pay for this stuff up front and then I have to pay to throw it away. Like mm-hmm. 10 minutes later, I'm paying for disposal for this thing that I just paid, you know, to to, to serve the food on. Um, or whether it's litter or whether it's the dining experience. Um, you know, this is really thing that a lot of businesses said, you know, I just think my food, we put so much love into it and then to put it on crappy styrofoam plate like just doesn't do it it doesn't pay any respect to the love that went into making it um and so you know businesses understand that yeah this may feel like a necessary evil um but really when they dig into it they can see well hey if i just switch to um washable cups the cups would pay for themselves in three months including the labor and the water and the electricity you know and then I'm saving money and not, you know, sort of on this disposable treadmill. And so I think, you know, there are real business cases and a lot of false assumptions in the system and a lot of pressure marketing from the packaging industry. You know, they they say, hey, we're going to come solve your problem. <laughs> Maybe you didn't have a problem to begin with. And now they're pushing, well, and you should also change your utensils. And what about? your plates and cups and let's do, you know, and um, then maybe solving a problem that doesn't exist. And we've gotten so, you know, attached to some of these ideas, like, you know, it's only been, I don't know, 15 years that people walk around everywhere at their coffee cup. You know, since when is it the norm that you buy a, a cup of coffee for four or five dollars now in many places and then carry it around with you? Why not like, sit on site and have your cup of coffee and then go do the next thing you're going to do and not have to carry this cup and find some place to get rid of it uh, down the road. So, uh, you know, a lot of this sense of need for disposables is really, um, you know, something that we've created that the industry has, you know, a problem they're solving a problem that they um, have manufactured for their own benefit. 
And, you know, that's speaking to the the multi-pronged approach in, in every city where there's a cultural level where you're working on mindset shifts as well as this policy level and maybe the groundwork in, in your city, speaking to the audience now, needs to be, you know, aligning a coalition of all sorts of different environmental and social justice organizations to work on a campaign finance limit as a first step. Um, I really appreciate that as a takeaway from this conversation. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening now, because as we've talked about so far, there, this got passed and then there was COVID and now things are just getting going again. Um, so what is it that you're seeing now in terms of um, how the city and food businesses are adapting to this policy? And maybe, Jessica, you can tell us a little bit about what your data is starting to show. And Martin, I'm sure you have anecdotal points to add on as well. Yeah, that sounds great. So what the data is starting to show is that we are seeing compliance over the four years. So from fall 2019 to fall 2022, we are seeing a rise in compliance with the different policy mechanisms. However, the compliance is low and there was, of course, the COVID effect. Um, so a couple of the key takeaways are that operational components that were already in place did grow over the four years. So things like self-serve stations with accessories, um, foodware accessories by request, accepting a customer's reusable cup, asking for here to go, um, businesses that have reusable foodware, those that were in place before the pandemic did grow comparatively in 2022, four years later. Operational components that were relatively easy to integrate had a steady adoption rate. And so that's most prevalent with compliant disposable cups. So part of the ordinance is that you have to have BPI certified compostable cups. And that was a relatively easy operational adoption. And so we did see that steady rise over the four years. The operational components that were tougher to implement um, or were not sanctioned by COVID-19 restrictions did not see substantial growth. So um, the disposable cup charge, so charging 25 cents for every disposable cup, it's a harder lift for businesses to put that on menus, put that in receipts, include that in their point of sale system. Um, busing stations with all three waste receptacles, so having landfill, compost, and recycling in the front of house. Um, and then also just in general, the disposable food where rate increased. So those that were more closely aligned with the COVID-19 restrictions and mandates didn't see quite as much growth over the four years. But we are seeing a rise in compliance with the different policy mechanisms. And I think that'd be a good transition to for Martin to speak about what what else is going on? Because we are taking additional efforts to increase that compliant rate. Yeah, I just want to say, um, you know, if if passing an ordinance like this is not possible in your community at this time, there's also other ways to go about, um, you know, that we're seeing other cities that are really focusing on um, promoting those businesses that are doing a better job or, you know, giving a certification kind of system that puts a sticker in their window that says, you know, this is a zero waste restaurant or something and um, promoting those who are doing a good job. And so I, I bring that up because even, you know, even with this ordinance, which has some real teeth to it, the approach all the way from the very beginning was to try and create a community wide change that benefits everybody. 
And that included, you know, this cup charge is something that the businesses get to keep and it helps to offset some of the other costs. And council's approach to it was, look, we don't want to be in a really punitive kind of environment with, you know, heavy enforcement and, um, you know, lots of sticks. We want to really build on the carrot side and and bring businesses along. So um, as we went through the pandemic, council really said, hey, let's not be too heavy handed here with um, compliance and enforcement on foodware when a lot of these businesses are facing other existential threats. So there was a long sort of gentle uh, pause, but now things are picking back up. And city staff has, you know, the, the, the division has added more staff for other um, compliance that's needed in the zero waste division. Um, and so we, we have some more staff who can get out to businesses. And um, the, the city is now, you know, looking at some of the folks who are gaming the system. In particular, we have Pete's Coffee who's been charging 25 cents, but doing nothing else. <laughs> so you go in and you pay 25 extra cents for your cup. And then you sit down with your disposable cup in Pete's cafe. <laughs> you know, there's no reusables to be found. I went in and asked for a, a cappuccino in a ceramic cup and they had to go on back and find one and wash it for me. <laughs> um, and then they made it in a paper cup and poured it into the ceramic <laughs> anyways. So, um, you know, there's legal action that the city can take and they're exploring that. I think there are going to be some, um, you know, actionable letters coming from the city attorney's office and get just getting support from um, the legal department at the city. There's also some other enforcement mechanisms, you know, that the, the compliance, basically, if you're out of compliance, there's low level fees that kick in. Basically, you get a ticket, you know. And uh, for a lot of these businesses, it's just not uh, that compelling an enforcement mechanism, but it is tied to their health permit. And so part of what's happening now is working with um, the public health inspectors who go into all the restaurants and have to get, you know, issue their, both their business and their health permits. And, you know, if we have a business out at the tail end of the, I'll never comply arena, we're starting to get some real um, tools in place that can say, look, if you don't get your act together on your foodware, then your permit is going to be in jeopardy. And that's an existential threat to a business. So, you know, some really concrete mechanisms at the, at the far end, a staff are starting to, you know, really flesh out what are the real teeth in this that um, we can use for those holdouts or those or difficult to convert. In the middle, the big hump in the middle of the bell curve of businesses, um, they just need um, technical support. They need to be reminded. They need to um, be informed that this is actually a priority and the city does intend to enforce it. You know, they don't need huge pushes. So we have a couple different mechanisms uh, around that. One is, as I mentioned, city staff uh, who can respond to complaints and go out to businesses and, and who are proactively looking at some of the um, bigger generators and starting with, you know, where's the most foodware being generated from because they also do the garbage hauling. And so they know <laughs> on the back end, you know, how much volume is coming out of different restaurants. Um, but, you know, Jess's methodology, I want to say two things about the research project, which are really great and really important. Number one, um, having a methodology that, you know, is pretty easy for other cities to implement is great. Like, so having a, a 
model data collection system is important and powerful and useful. And and as cities and you know pass these ordinances, organizers and and cities themselves should be thinking about getting baseline data in advance. And the other component of it is that it's observational. This is not like let me go survey the business owner and ask them what they think about this or that, or ask them to tell me how, you know, are they using more or less foodware um, or are they complying? This is, you know, observational. You go out and you look and you see in the field what's actually happening. And, um, you know, that's a fundamental difference than a lot of the research approaches, which are like contact the business owner and ask them survey questions. Um, The other thing it does for researchers out there is it avoids the human subjects piece of research, which can be a real challenge and barrier to, you know, human resource protocols are really important. They're there for a reason. They're to protect people from being used or manipulated or inconvenienced or causing harm to, to people involved in research. But um, they are, a, a, you know, a big challenge and being able to just go out and observe without having a human subject, meaning an interview, um, you know, can, can streamline your, your um, academic processes quite a bit. Um, but, you know, another benefit of this is that that observational data collection methodology is now informing the Ecology Center and some of our other colleagues um, as group at UC, a student group at UC Berkeley, and, and working with the city and sort of paring that down into a very practical tool that we can just go out to businesses and say, are they compliant on this, that, or the other? And now the Ecology Center, we're working on a scorecard um, that we'll be generating for businesses and sending out to them directly and saying, hey, um, you're doing great on these things and you could do better on these. And you got a B plus or four stars, you know, or three stars. And here's how you get, how you can move that up. You know, that's a mechanism for us to give that feedback directly to the restaurants and business owners. And to let them know, hey, it's not just the city who's watching. Um, the community is watching. And we want, you know, we want you to do, we love you. <laughs> it's great to have you as a business in our community. And you serve great food. And, you know, we want to do that in a way that, that's really um, more sustainable and, and, and healthy for all. And so, you know, that sort of benefit from the research project is now that we're developing you know, a pared down version of the, the collection data collection tool so that um, residents, community members, students can go out and collect this data, get that feedback right back to those businesses, and then really promote the ones who are doing great. Like we don't want to necessarily generate the dirty dozen list. Um, you know, if it comes to shaming, like in the case of Pete's or something, you know, there might be a case where we want to highlight, you know, how they're bad actors in this system. But um, mostly we would want to promote the ones who are doing well and and reward them and say, look, you know, here's a business who's doing it right and taking the effort and really gets it. And um, you should patronize them. You know, you should shop there. You should um, support them. And so you know, that's kind of a, a great collateral benefit that's coming out of this research project. Absolutely. You know, and that kind of dovetails into one of my last questions here. Um, so, Martin, we have this incredible resource you all have created on the Ecology Center website. And again, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And Jessica, I know research publication can be quite the process and take a minute. But is there anywhere right now that people can have a look at 
a basic version of your methodology or any of these findings so they could use it as a template for the kind of applied research that Martin was just talking about? Yeah. So not right this moment, but in the next probably month or two, we will be putting out a report that will essentially give a bit of background on the ordinance, uh, the general methodology, and then also the generalized uh, research findings. And we want to make it as actionable to the public as possible. So we are gearing it towards those who are activists within their community, those who are city staff members, those who are council members, and so forth. It is. It certainly does not have the academic jargon that a peer-reviewed publication might have, but instead is a kind of a quick wins or quick uh, overview of how we went through it, and also include the the survey itself so that people can replicate. And when we wrap, you know, when we finalize uh, the pared down version, you know, it may not have the academic rigor of being able to get to your 95th percentile, uh, you know, confidence level. Um, But it will be something that cities and, and other communities can use in terms of, you know, giving that feedback to businesses, collecting baseline and data over time. Um, that can at least, you know, give some feedback to, hey, it's working, it's not working, here's where we need to improve. Um, and and that kind of tool can be very useful in, in the public process. You know, if an ordinance gets passed, but then there's no enforcement or there's no implementation, community members are collecting the data and come back and say, hey, I don't know what your staff's telling you, but this is what we've seen in the field, you know, to yeah. have that, um, even if it's not, you know, academic publication quality. It's, you know, valuable field information that, that can inform um, moving forward. Just look at the impact of the brand audit process and the break free from plastic movement and how much that's changed corporate behavior. Um, so Martin, I'm assuming when that's ready, that'll be added to the toolkit. Yeah, we'll be putting that report that Jessica's mm-hmm. talking about, which is a four-year, you know, sort of public facing version and any academic papers that Jessica gets published. Uh, we'll go up there as well. And then also this tool, which is really, it's just a Google form. You know, it's very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, no heavy data, no, you know, heavy software needs, uh, et cetera. And, and something that people could, you know, make a copy of and then modify for their own, to meet their own needs in, in some other community. Awesome. Well, thank you guys both so much for the the work you're doing and taking time to talk with us here today about what you're up to. And I hope next time we have you 100 episodes more down the road, (laughs) we'll have lots more city ordinances passed and some campaign finance laws as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us and helping us spread all this great work. Yeah. Thanks for all your work with this podcast and, you know, at the national level, just having a a platform to um, cross pollinate, you know, what we've done here in Berkeley wouldn't have been possible without what had happened before in other communities. And I'm sure other communities are gonna take what we've done and and push it forward in in new and, and exciting ways. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. 
You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.